And this photograph, he is sweaty and full of despair in his eyes. And actually, I think it's a pretty good portrait of him. I'm, I'm really more interested in sort of getting to feel like the quality and the feeling of a person rather than trying to get them to do some stuff. That was Soren Solker, and this is Nordic Portraits. Soren Solker is an art photographer, perhaps best known for his distinctive portraits of musicians the likes of which include Björk, The White Stripes, Arctic Monkeys, Amy Winehouse, and U2. However, this is just one chapter in a long career. Soren has spent the greater part of the last three decades releasing numerous books and exhibiting his work globally. If you were to encounter Soren's work, you may well be struck by its cinematic quality, as well as his bold use of colour and the deeply reflective tonality of the images themselves. Soren, welcome to Nordic Portraits. Thank you very much. Just to start out, I wondered if you could maybe take us back to that time when you, for the very first time, picked up a camera and started shooting. Can you remember it? And were you immediately, uh, was it love at first sight? Well, my my mother had an old camera, um, quite old school. Well, it was analog. It was in the 70s and uh, it was only pulled out on vacation and Christmas and birthdays, and I remember being quite fascinated by it. Um, I also remember reading when I was a kid that there would be a big meteor in the sky in 1990-something, and I remember thinking, I really hope that I have a good camera by then. (laughs) (laughs) So that was a pretty long-term plan, I guess, because at that time you would have had a few, uh, quite a few years to prep. Yes, so when did you acquire your very own camera for the first time? Well, actually, it was pretty late. Um, I didn't get a camera till after I finished high school. And it was kind of a compact camera and, and that I used. I, but from that moment, I became the guy who documented my group of friends. Mm. Um, and uh, I got my first real camera when I started traveling the year after. Uh, after I'd made some money, I hit the road and uh when i got to singapore i bought a i bought an slr camera as you mentioned you said that you became the person in the friendship group that documented things how did that change the dynamics for you in terms of how you could express yourself i don't know i mean i just i just like to have to have an active role to play um and the camera gave me that um i found since that time, and especially when I got a real camera, that I've done a lot of things just because I was carrying a camera, a lot of things that I, that I wouldn't have done otherwise. So that has been an enabler for you to be somewhat more extroverted, would you say, in terms of your interaction with people or access, obviously access to things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to encounter? In many cases, it has enabled me to or given me the courage to go up to people and to talk to people that I wouldn't have otherwise talked to. But there are also instances where it has made me more of a 
passive. Uh, for many years, I've when I toured with bands, I mean, I was kind of the outsider who was witnessing what was going on and rather than being part of it. But that was also my job, I mean, to to document what was going on. So just on that, I mean, obviously you were well known for having more or less shaped or helped shape the visual identity of the now iconic Danish band, The Ravenettes. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came into contact with Suna? Uh, the founder of the band, and was that indeed kind of your first opportunity to work with musicians? Um, yes, it was. Well, in fact, my uncle is a musician, and um, I did some uh, PR shots of him uh, in front of his fireplace uh, <laughs> earlier than that with a kind of lamp that you use for keeping piglets warm in the, in the stables. <laughs> that was it was the only lamp we had so it was a pretty hot photo session <laughs> was he wearing some sort of icelandic knitwear or something i can just imagine it being very rustic do you know my uncle <laughs> yeah he was he, he was playing irish folk music and he uh, he always wears uh, uh, knit sweaters <laughs> yeah but um, and that didn't give you your big break, or it didn't actually. Um, he just asked me last week, actually, if I would do some more photos of him, and and I told him I would if he still had that lamp. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> no, but my first contact was Suna uh, Wagner from the Ravenettes um, was in the late nineties when when he was uh, he had a band called Psyched Up Janice, which was a pretty big grunge band at the time. It was quite big in Denmark and they got signed in the UK and lived over there for a while. Sune grew up in the same part of Denmark as me, in the southern part, and uh, so I knew him a little bit from... He was part of my brother's uh, group of friends. And um, while they were in high school, I was traveling, and then while I was studying to become a photographer, he was becoming a, a rock star <laughs> so when we finally met in Copenhagen we had both sort of acquired new skills and uh, he saw my photographs and uh, we decided to do some work together and I did the backside of his last cover of, for uh, Psyched Up Janice um, and that became the start of a very long collaboration um, that has lasted um, until today. How would you reflect on that now, considering a significant amount of time has passed? When you, when you look back at those early images and that very distinctive visual identity you were able to evoke for the band? Well, I can. it was very much a collaboration. I think Suna has a very strong sense of visual arts, both film and, and photography. And uh, I think that really helped me become style conscious because he really knew what he wanted and doing all those images with him actually taught me a lot. And um, because he quit his band soon after we started working together and he was without a job and he was writing the material for his new his new band, The Ravenettes, and he asked me if he could assist me. And um, I found it a bit weird because I had photographed him as a rock star and I knew that assisting involved making coffee for me and uh, <laughs> washing yep. my floor. and uh, But he, he was 
quite persistent and uh, we ended up working together for a year and a half uh, as where he worked for me as a freelance assistant. Wow. So it was actually a true collaboration in the sense that he was also involved in your process of, yes. of uh, photography itself. Yeah. Cause I knew all the, I, I had all the equipment and I knew a lot of, about the technical stuff. And um, while he was writing this uh, material for his new album, we were also talking a lot about sort of the style for the, for the photography for the new album. And I did the cover for the new album in sort of a film noir or American B-movie uh, tradition and some Hollywood portraiture. Um, and uh, I think we, we had talked about it so much that we really nailed it when we finally got around to doing the cover. So fast forward a few years, you suddenly find yourself at Roskilde Festival which is the massive Danish summer music festival, uh, photographing Damon Auburn. Um, soon thereafter, you're photographing the likes of Amy Winehouse, Paul McCartney. Was it a steady progression to go from working with Suna locally in Copenhagen to suddenly bursting out onto the international scene? Or how did that journey take place? Yeah, I mean, there were three or four years where I only worked in Denmark. And because I hadn't, I'd, I'd been to art school and I so I didn't have much formal education in photography I spent two years in Prague studying photography but it wasn't it was more of a artistic rather than a technical school and so I saw those years in Copenhagen as kind of a learning years uh, and I wanted to become an experienced photographer but I also I, I always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to work in America or in England, especially in England, because I, that's the music that I love the most came from England. So I, and also London is only, or it's less than two hours from Copenhagen. So that was also always my long-term goal. But it wasn't until I photographed the Ravenettes and right after that also um, Junior Senior. And those two bands kind of broke internationally at the same time. And that became my stepping stone to London because they both got international labels and I got to have meetings with them and I got an agent in in England based on those those two bands that that I'd photographed. Going back to your time in Prague, was that the result of you having felt that because I know you studied literature prior to that. Yeah. Um when you then upped and went to Prague, did you have a clear idea that okay, I know that I'm going to be a successful art photographer. This is exactly the path that I'm going to take. Was it because you had a lack of opportunities out of your bachelor degree in literature or what took place to, to cause you? Because, I mean, that's obviously not a convenient decision to make. You really had to, to work for it, presumably, to up and move to Prague. Yeah, I mean, I knew that I wanted to do photography, so it was an entirely like, passion-based decision to go there. And um, actually... I really had no idea. Well, I had an idea, but it wasn't turned out that it wasn't the right idea. Um, I thought I was going to go do like classic documentary photography. And this was very big in the 90s, also in Denmark, to do black and white photography, to travel somewhere to Cuba or Poland, or and then do like stories about tuna fishermen or coal miners or... So I thought I was going to do something like that and also go into an Eastern European uh, country. I thought I would be going to to other countries around there and do like documentary photography. 
But what I learned when I came to Prague, there was a strong tradition for staged photography that was very closely connected to their theater scene, which was really huge. Um, and that really impressed me when I got there and I decided that that was what I wanted to do, something that where I created what was in front of my camera rather than documented something that was already there. Is it true that you almost didn't end up in Prague as the result of uh, some sort of administrational error? Well, I always believed that I was going to Prague to study, so, but I had sent an application um, to the school and uh, I sent it in the spring and it was, it was a portfolio of photographs uh, from my travels in mainly in Nepal and Tibet, um, plus a few portraits of my sister and some of my friends. Um, and I was totally convinced that I would get accepted. Um, everyone around me, including my mom, said that <laughs> it was pretty good. <laughs> so <laughs> Your uncle was a huge fan. Sales had gone through the roof. <laughs> but I didn't hear anything for a few months, uh, and I waited the whole summer, and I hadn't signed up for the university in Denmark because I was so sure I would start studying in Prague. So early August, soon before the school started, I I called the school and said, hey, I, I sent an application. And the secretary of the school said, well, we did receive a slip from the post office that there was a package from Denmark, but they wanted us to pay to get it released. So I think it was $5 or the equivalent of $5 because I'd put a value on on my um, package. And I couldn't believe it. Like, so you haven't looked at my things. Can I speak to the headmaster, please? <laughs> uh, or the dean of this faculty. And um, so I spoke to him, and he confirmed the story. And uh, I got desperate, and I said, hey, what will you look at it if I come tomorrow morning and show you my work? And he said, well, sure, I'll do that. <laughs> And uh, so I only had one friend who had a car, uh, a very old Volkswagen Polo. And I called her and I said, hey, can I borrow your car for a couple of days? And she said, yeah, sure. And I drove all night, takes about 12 hours to drive to Prague. Drove all night and then I got there in the morning as it was getting light and I found the post office because at this time this it was all analog, so I didn't have duplicate prints uh, um, I only had one portfolio, and I, it would would have taken me weeks to make another one. So I went to the post office with money and my passport and explained the situation, and they ended up giving me this package that I'd send. And I went to the school and had a meeting with the dean, and uh, I was uh, accepted into the school. And... Uh, not because of my photography. <laughs> uh, I think I was almost accepted just for turning up in this case. So, I mean, it's interesting you should say that. Do you think that that's a theme that might have run through your career? I mean, not, not to say that you haven't been <laughs> immensely talented on your journey, but how much of it is just turning up time and time again, at least in the early stages? I mean, actually, I've been very persistent, I think, with... Um, all my projects that I've done and all my books. And I think that blind belief in the project has done a lot for, I mean, uh, for, for many of the projects that I've completed. I think most of my projects have taken five to ten years to complete. 
And I think it kind of comes from the same place that I just believe in something so much that I keep going and then in the end it usually happens. Um, so I went out from the school at 11 in the morning and uh, bought two bottles of Russian champagne and, <laughs> and started drinking and celebrating. And three weeks later, I lived in Prague. Incredible. Yeah. Now, um, you mentioned about the approach that you learned while you were in Prague. Was that then a springboard for your first uh, project, which was, of course, Photographer's Posed? I'd love to talk a little bit more about that because I, I find that fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... The background for a photographer's post was um, when I started school and I started being introduced to the work of the sort of major Czech photographers. This was the first time where I saw photography as a very distinct and personal visual language. I could see that each photographer had developed a very distinct style. And uh, in Denmark people get inspiration from all over the place. And I don't think we, you could say we have like a, a national identity or visual language um, because we don't have, we haven't had big institutions here that teach photography. So people go to England and Scotland and Prague, Germany to do their education. And as a result, we don't really have a national photographic identity. Hmm. So um, I was really fascinated by coming to Prague and seeing how these, how each photographer had perfected their language. That you could see one print and you would know exactly which photographer had done it. And this fascination and curiosity led me to start contacting photographers. And I came up with the idea that I wanted to photograph these photographers. Maybe I just wanted to meet them. <laughs> but I was quite inexperienced and I had one camera, 35 millimeter camera. And I came to the first studio and asked this guy if I could take a portrait of him. And I ended up photographing him with his own camera because he had a much, much better camera than me <laughs> and a much bigger camera. And... Um, I also used his lights uh, to photograph him <laughs> and I did it in his studio and the brash confidence of youth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was the first time I used a tripod lights, <laughs> a medium format camera. <laughs> um, but then when I saw the results, it was not only a portrait. It was, it was my idea and direction of this guy, but actually the photograph looked a lot like his work because it was done with a lot of the same ingredients that he used in his work. Um, and, well, part of it was out of need because I didn't really have much equipment myself uh, nor money to buy it. Uh, so it became the concept for this project that I would photograph photographers using their own equipment and using their own, their own models. <laughs> <laughs> and... I think after the second or third, um, I mean, sometimes with the projects, the concept is not totally clear from the beginning, but mm. it's something that becomes clear as you go. Uh, but after the second or third session, I knew this is what I'm doing. I'm doing portraits of photographers in their own studio with their own models, and I'm printing 
the resulting print in the style of the photographer. So I would also research into what kind of paper they used, what kind of techniques. I would use the exact same kind of film they used. And suddenly um, it became a journey where I met all these photographers, but also I learned all these different techniques and I learned to like speak many different languages within the photographic uh, language. Were there were there particular languages that you had to learn that were painstaking to master their craft? Uh, yes, many of them actually. Um, Czech photography is very craft based, so there was a lot of. I mean, they were still mixing all their own chemicals with like different chemical powders, and they all had secret secret techniques that they would sometime have to teach me in order for me to do something that looked or resembled their work. There was also some who dyed their work and some uh, hand-tinted their prints, and it took me, I mean, for instance, the photographer Jan Saudek, who who hand-tints all his prints. I mean, it took me probably six months to learn to do something that that was reasonably close to what he was doing. And this is obviously pre-internet or on the cusp of the internet. Yes. So I'm guessing it wasn't easy just to find their email addresses online and make contact with them. I mean, how did you... No, it was... Um, I mean, the initial portraits I did were, were all uh, in the Czech Republic. And I initially, I didn't know that I was going to do anything but the Czech Republic. I ended up doing nine different countries. Um, but the first ones I got through... Uh, network and there was um, an one of my teachers was a famous art critic and he knew a lot of the photographers and so he would introduce me or like put in a word for me or in most cases he would give me their fax numbers <laughs> and um, for instance I mean Jan Saudek who was sort of one of the biggest under this the Czech scene and sort of an outsider uh, that you would never see um, I faxed him once a week for six months before he responded to me. and But he was so important for the project that I would have just gone on for two years, I think. Um, and actually a lot of photography projects are much more about planning, researching, than actually photographing. I mean, that's, it, that's been the case for a lot of my projects where photography is the smallest part of it. So... You finish up with Photographers Posed and you start working more and more with musicians as a result of this collaboration with Suna. As you mentioned with Photographers Posed, you don't always know that it's going to be a project until, or what the project looks like until you've had a few um, shoots under your belt. Was there a master plan with Closer, the project, uh, which is obviously featuring well-known musicians. W was there a master plan behind that or was it more or less just the result of accumulating works over a period? Initially, there was no master plan uh, at all. I mean, I I went into music photography because I tried to do some advertising photography at that time and found that I had no creative input whatsoever. I would almost get a sketch of the photo, uh, sort of of the desired result. And that didn't interest me at all. Um, I found in the music industry, it became a very collaborative uh, effort. And also I found that I soon started hooking up with bands that somehow fit my photography, bands that I liked, and therefore maybe the mood of my photography somehow 
fit the music as well. And I started to, I, it was during those years that I also started to develop an idea of what my own photography looked like because it's never been a conscious decision that I want to do this kind of photography. It's rather doing something for a few years and then you look at all your work and you can see, hey, this is, there are some certain traits that go go through my photography. And, and I think that was also a realization from from Prague that a style is something that comes out after you've done something a lot of times. I mean, if you have photographed 50 bands, I can start seeing how I photograph bands. And then I can start more consciously to continue in that direction. Fascinating to hear what you said about the idea of collaborating with the subject. I mean, in the case of bands, for example, you said that there were you know particular artists that you liked, therefore you would probably get a better result out of that. Can you speak a little bit to what that collaboration could look like, even just in practical terms. I'm fascinated by the fact that, you know, when you show up on the set with an Arctic Monkeys, let's let's use Arctic Monkeys or the White Stripes or your, your collaboration with Jack White as those are good examples where you've journeyed with them along a, a longer period of time. Yes. Um, how much can you prep going onto the set? How carefully do you think about um, the visual stylings that you want to communicate? Or how much is it, you know, the result of the synergy on the day? Well, there are two kinds of photography that I've done. Uh, some has been for artwork, for record labels, and then some has been editorial for magazines. So, And those two categories are very different. So editorial work is most often you turning up somewhere in a hotel or on a, a music venue. Sometimes I travel with bands and then you have to f- come up with something and those shoots have given me a lot of creative input because I could kind of land in a city and I could find a place where I wanted to do it. And most often, I mean, if the band was on tour, they hadn't, they'd just been informed you have a photo shoot tomorrow. Um, Whereas artwork has often or almost every time been more planned. There's more people involved because it's the packaging for a commercial product. There's a lot riding on it. Yeah. So there's a label involved, graphic designers, the band itself. How does the artwork fit the music for this particular album or the theme of the album? Often I would get music sent to me so I could come up with ideas that that were derived from maybe some of the lyrics from the songs or some of the themes of the album. Well, in the case of working with Jack White, as you (laughs) mentioned, I mean, in his case, an editorial shoot is more like an artwork shoot. Sure. <laughs> because I think he's he's more aware than anyone I've worked with about every single detail that comes out. I mean, and how it's done. Like, there's a lot of dogmas around how he works, how he records music, how he wants his photographs and graphic design to look. So there's a lot of rules you have to work with if you want to work with him. So just on that, I mean, you're obviously the man behind that iconic diner scene with the the white stripes. Yeah. Uh, that was shot back in 2007, yeah. I believe. So what was involved with a shoot like that? Um, quite a lot. I mean, it, it was a spread for British GQ magazine. And there was a um, there was a scene with some people sitting in a cafe 
was some kind of a gangster scene. I don't know if it was from Sopranos or something like this. There was a an image sent to me first, like we want to do something in a bar or in a restaurant or something. And um, and then there was some input from Jack. I mean, I got a list of things like you can only use black and white and red. And um, I came up with the idea, I mean, because there was only two of them in the white stripes, it was kind of hard to create that feeling of a uh, overcrowded bar <laughs> sure so, so i came up with the idea of um, multiplying them and comping them together in different outfits and jack liked that idea but he said that he wanted all the clothes to be vintage so if we were in a diner and he had to be uh, the guy behind the counter doing the shaking the milkshakes he, he wanted the apron to be from the 50s and the shirt to be vintage. And so he had some requirements for, for the clothes. And then there was a stylist hired in Los Angeles and one in New York to find clothes. And they were sent to Nashville. And then I arrived to Nashville two days before the shoot. And I didn't know the location at that point. So I spent a whole day driving around with a taxi to nine different diners uh, in and around Nashville to find one that worked with the colorings because uh, most of them had were brown or green or sure um, and I found one actually turned out to be very near Jack's place he lives in Nashville uh, that was perfect and I was very nervous when I went up to the manager to ask if we could do a shoot there because Basically, we had to shut down the diner for two hours to do this. So, But he knew of the white stripes, and so he was up for it. Yeah, and we had a fantastic shoot. Jack is a very good actor, actually. He really, he was very in character in the different outfits that, um, that, he, was, that he was wearing. Do you feel when you're working with uh, a sooner who's very cine literate or a Jack who is so obsessive about the details that you actually lift your game yeah i think it um at least i could see the results for all the work i've done with the, the white stripes i mean it's very striking and i i think or I, I know from talking to jack and also watching movies about him and that i mean that's the very reason why he sets up these uh, limitations for himself and i think that really forces you to be more creative i mean to narrow your options um and i mean i know he does exactly the same thing when he plays music and he sets up limitations for himself on stage uh, and um yeah i think he's i f feel like can learn a lot from yeah from a lot of these artists so that's one end of the spectrum but what about the opposite end of the scale uh, you mentioned that some of these artists are on tour perhaps and are presumably quite tired might have been on the road for a long time what do you do when you encounter an artist who's just disengaged disinterested doesn't want to be there do you have an example of that well generally i'm uh, i always come very early to a location so i can find out all the options there are because often i mean if it's if it's an interview, it's often in a hotel, and if the hotel room is not a good location, then it's important that I've looked at the roof of the building or the fire escape or 
the bar or the elevator or just to find out which options do we have just so I can do something that's visually interesting. But I've had several photo shoots where I've encountered artists who who were not up for being photographed uh, on that day. So mm. some of those photo shoots have become very, very short uh, and some of these artists have not wanted to collaborate. Um, but I've learned, I mean, I think they've been quite tough at the time, these uh, photo shoots, but I've I've learned that the results are actually sometimes even more interesting than artists who want to collaborate too much and to look their best or their coolest or actually it gives you a more edgy and more true picture of, of what it is what it's like to be on tour for two years because it is very tough um, to live on a bus and to just wake up in a new city every day and to drink way too much or take drugs or whatever i think it's um it really wears you out i think doing this for for, for a long time i think of as a prime example of that i think of the noel gallagher shot um with him kind of staring across the table at an empty what looks like an empty private restaurant um was that on tour with them in argentina yes um yeah i i spent four or five days with oasis in in argentina when they were doing two big shows there um yeah i mean that was i think it was even a one-off i mean they were they were not even on tour they just came from london to argentina but they've just been doing this for decades um and notoriously difficult to work with the gallagher brothers i mean they've had a very very volatile relationship with with press and with record labels and everyone around them so i mean they are I just imagine it could be a perfect storm if you take the Gallagher boys in a place like Argentina where presumably they're almost holed up in the hotel because they're almost godlike in South America. Yeah. It would have been an interesting experience. Yeah, it was. And actually, I mean, I I came on the same uh, plane as them from London and um, we had a couple of days before we had to start working and we spent the evenings in a bar uh, or most of the band including Liam was in the bar and we we spoke a lot or at least Liam spoke a lot <laughs> <laughs> and no but we we got to know each other a little bit and uh I just thought perfect this is going great but then on day 3 when we were finally ready for the photographs well we were going out to a part of the city where that I had that I had scouted the day before, and it was a very colorful part of town, but it was quite far away from the hotel. So, and whenever the band had to go out, they they were driving in this van with dark windows, and we had it, and they had like four police cars escorting them, and there were thousands of fans at all times around the hotel. So it was a pretty big deal to get out there, and it took quite a long time. When we finally got there. I had made an exact plan of like the three different places I wanted to photograph. And we started photographing. And after four or five minutes, Noel Gallagher said, I'm hungry. I I want a sandwich. <laughs> and I was like, no, well, we'll, we'll get the man a sandwich. And he said, well, 
actually, I want to eat at the hotel. Uh, I don't, I don't want to eat out here. And then he just started walking and the other guy started following him and they were, that's when I realized this is the end of the shoot. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I had two assistants holding my lights and I started running with the band, photographing them as they were walking back to the bus just to squeeze every single image I could out of this. Um, and they got in the bus and went back to the hotel. And I was devastated. Oh. Um, that same night, they were playing a huge concert at a polo stadium for an audience of about 80,000 people. It's probably the biggest uh, concert after Glastonbury that I've ever been to. Um, and Noel actually came over to me a few hours before the concert and said, oh, sorry, sorry about this morning. You can, you can do all the backstage for, uh, photography you want before the concert. I think he wanted to make up for, <laughs> for his <laughs> bad behavior in the morning. So it so actually turned out to be really great because I could, I mean, the, they're all separate before. I mean, Liam and Noel are in like, in like separate parts of the backstage area. <laughs> of course they are. They they build up this, they have this plan of how you build their backstage and there's two rooms in either end and there's a lot of different corridors so you don't, so they can get around without meeting each other. <laughs> <laughs> and so I spent time with Noel on his own in a restaurant, in their res restaurant where he was eating dinner on his own. And then I went into Liam afterwards, who was, he'd just learned to play guitar and he was practicing his guitar, drinking tea. <laughs> and um, yeah, I got some really cool shots. Uh, I love that that tour was like five albums in and Liam's just learning guitar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he was just starting to write his own songs as well. Wow. He, uh, he, he, he told me that many other songwriters in the world were quite nervous right now because he had started writing songs. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny you, you should say that because there is, I mean, what you're hinting at is, is a little bit what you alluded to with Jack White, the idea that within the restrictions or limitations of a shoot, you can actually find the gold. Yeah. Um, I think as well to the Pete Doherty or Doherty yeah. image that you took. I mean, he was also without going into all the details, I read that he was really tough to uh, track down. He's just very hard to to uh, make an appointment with because <laughs> he... The famous front man from the Libertines. Yeah, he never turns up. So, but I mean, I did get one photograph of him in the end in Copenhagen and I'm very, very happy about that photograph. <laughs> it shows him leaving the stage a stage that was inside a huge exhibition of my work um, in the center of Copenhagen. And I hired him to come play so I could do a portrait of him. But he didn't turn up for the actual shoot. And so I've, I got one shot of him as he was leaving stage, going into the waiting limousine behind the building. <laughs> <laughs> and this photograph, is sweaty and full of despair in his eyes. And actually... I think it's a pretty good portrait of him. Um, and I'm sure if I got a real photo session with him, it would have been much more him smoking a cigarette with a cool hat and and would have been much closer to fashion photography than than a authentic portrait of him. So what 
do you look for in a portrait? I look for I look for feelings. I look for I think I mean my style of photography is basically just I think reflecting my own personality. I'm not directing a lot. It actually I'm very quiet when I photograph and it confuses some artists who are used especially American ones who are used to do this, do that, think about this. Think about this feeling. <laughs> I'm quite the opposite. I mean, I try to I try to inspire a feeling by my own presence. And I'm more interested in a more sort of inward energy. My portraits tend to be more quiet, calm, inward. People are not that outgoing, I think, in my work. And uh, I'm I'm really more interested in sort of getting to feel like the quality and the feeling of a person rather than trying to get them to do some stuff. Mm. You've been very good at being able to parlay the opportunity of shooting editorial into creating genuine artistic work that can be exhibited uh, globally. Yeah, I think, for example, with a Bjork, yeah. presumably if you were shooting for Q Magazine for that, the output that that is this stunning portrait of her almost in some sort of childlike state huddled up looking at out the windowsill at the moonlight how did you manage to negotiate that because those seem like almost at odds to have done something with great artistic merit on what was ostensibly presumably an editorial shoot yes well when i started to get a sense of my own visual language and what I wanted to achieve or sort of what kind of images and what kind of mood resonated with me. Um, I tried to, whenever I could, create that kind of image when I had access. And working for Q Magazine and GQ Magazine gave me incredible access, not only to the biggest stars in the world, but also I got time with them mm. very early days i worked when i photographed my first two international artists damon alban and the red hot chili peppers was for danish uh, media where they gave you like one minute or five minutes um because it was for some newspaper that never heard about so but working for some of the most influential media uh, print media in the uk gave me this incredible access. And I think I learned it from actually a photographer I photographed who's been a big inspiration, Anton Cobain from, from Holland, seeing his books and how he had managed to turn commercial access into personal work. Like all of his work is very, very specifically his work. And so I was very aware when I got access to an artist that I wanted to get something for me uh, and something that I could call my own work. In some cases, like Q, when I was shooting a lot of the covers, it had to be on a white background, which was the case with Björk. Um, but I had Björk for an hour and it took me 15 minutes to shoot the cover and then I had 45 minutes to do my own thing. And... Uh, and I suppose because the artist knew that it was a one-hour photo session, it was 
cool. And I always made sure that I had a plan for the entire time I had the artist. I would even tell them when we started, I said, well, initially we're going to do the cover, then I have an idea to do something over here and over there. And I think that kind of made the artist just accept this is what's going to happen. <laughs> and uh, that's much easier than coming up with the ideas as you go because the artist may not collaborate with you. Um, yeah, so I think... Uh, I think I owe that approach to Anton Cobain. I mean, also seeing how he's used books in his work. from Even from his early work, books have been very important to me, but actually, initially, I had no idea that I would be making books myself. Um, I come from a home with a lot of books. My mother was managing a bookshop. My father was a, a schoolteacher. So we had books everywhere and I worked in a bookshop and loved books. And But it wasn't till I was in my 30s till I actually started publishing books of my own work. And um, my first book was the first time where I would go through all of my music photography. And that was really when I started to get to know myself as a photographer. And uh, now all my books have become very important milestones where you force yourself to sit down for months and look at your work, edit it, sequence it, print it, well, design it and, and print it. And uh, that process is very hard and it's very, it's very intensive work. Um, but, well, f first of all, you learn a lot about yourself as a photographer and also it's a good way to finish a project that now it's done, here's the book, and now, then you can move on and um, explore a new direction. And you did, after Closer, you then went on to, in many ways, an even more ambitious project. I mean, one would have thought that it was difficult enough portraying the world's leading musicians, but you then turned your sights to street art. I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about where the genesis of that idea came from. When I was a teenager, I got very interested in hip-hop culture. It was just when hip-hop got big in New York and... I was living in the countryside in Denmark in a yeah or in a village um and uh, me and two other friends we got our hands on some VHS tapes from um from America Beat Street and Style Wars and suddenly we saw this culture the hip hop culture of dance graffiti music and it was the wildest thing we'd ever seen and we weirdly totally related to it uh, and started breakdancing every single day and we started making mixtapes and we found out there was some guys in neighboring villages who had the same passion or hobby and we started exchanging music with them and we started like taking the local bus to the nearby town to dance uh in the streets uh, without ghetto blasters in the on the local bus and we were it was hard to do graffiti in our town because there was only there was one bus shelter <laughs> <laughs> and we would write our name the Bronx Breakers that was the name of our breakdance crew naturally yeah of course <laughs> um, and we swore that we would dance breakdance for the rest of our lives, no matter if it went out of fashion or... <laughs> we, we stuck with it for a couple of years. And then 
I think 20 years later, when I was traveling, I started seeing how street art started getting bigger in all the big cities. And I would start, when, when I was working in different cities, I would start going out just to look at street art. And I started recognize a lot of the artists, I could see a lot of the styles. And, you, and I realized that a lot of the artists were like nomads and they would travel from city to city and do their work. And there were a few of them I got very interested in and I started looking for information about these guys and girls and uh, I couldn't find anything. Hmm. And I was used to from music and from painting and from movies that I knew a lot about the artists behind the art, their photographs, their biographies. And I realized that with street art, there was no, there was no information out there, really. And uh, then I decided that I, that I wanted to create the book that connected all the major street artists to their work. Mm. Um, and uh, it, I think it was a little bit of a naive idea, actually, because I <laughs> thought I would kind of create a, an encyclopedia or, of street art. But I soon realized when I started doing it that it was a really difficult world to photograph in. How, sir? Well... The second one, the second artist I photographed, Aris from Spain, when I, when I pulled up my camera and, and he was obviously not ready, he showed me that very, very clearly. And he said, no, 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 you can't photograph my face. And he like pulled his uh, T-shirt in front of his face and he's pulled his cap down. And being a portrait photographer, I realized just then that there was some big, obstacles <laughs> for me in this in this uh, project yeah you would uh, think that's a fundamental yeah being able to see their faces and actually after a few portraits uh, i kind of turned that obstacle into the concept for the project so i did all these collaborations with the artists about if they didn't want to show their face which is the case maybe 50 percent of the portraits i would have them make masks or some creative way of disguising their identity and it became a project that was not really a portrait project so it's also the reason why i've named the project surface my book before that was called closer and that was my more like intimate portraits of musicians where surface became actually it was i photographed a photographer a very a huge photographer who is who is now gone his name is arnold newman and he sort of invented the term environmental portrait where you tell the story about the person you portray by very carefully arranging their surroundings so you you tell the story about them by in this case showing the work its placement in the urban environment so i got a tiny step closer to showing who these people are but in many cases it was through showing their work, their, I mean, you can see their bodies and their clothes, in some cases their faces, but maybe you could see a mask, a creation of their own covering their face, but uh, it never became that sort of intimate portrait project. Um, but it became a very visual book. I mean, because I included the walls or the artworks, it became this extremely visual project where you would... In one book, you suddenly have artwork from all the major metropolises in the world 
gathered in suddenly in one book. And also when I exhibited this work, there was a huge exhibition where all the the work was blown up to very large prints and the space almost became like one big city that contained like 10 different cities. So you could go through neighborhoods of Miami straight into Athens and Melbourne and like the whole world was like gathered uh, in one room. You, you mentioned um, that there were challenges in portraying these people. I mean, who are these people? We don't know a lot about street artists. You moved from working with people who we are very familiar or feel very familiar with, musicians from around the world. How would you contrast them? Yeah. One of the reasons why I decided to photograph, or another reason why I decided to photograph a street artists was that, first of all, I felt like I had photographed most of the musicians that I would like to photograph, um, with a few exceptions. Also, I felt like the music industry was becoming more and more controlled. Um, there was more and more people, maybe because I was photographing bigger and bigger artists, possibly, but there was more and more people who had a say and less just straight collaboration between me and an artist. Um, and I have a few older colleagues who photographed musicians back in from the beginning of like rock and roll in the 60s and um when they told me about the access they had to the big stars back then i i became very envious because really they they could go up to a hotel and just go straight up to the artist and ask them to come out in the city and do some photographs and um with street art i've i had a feeling that the time in the sort of evolution of street art right now was the equivalent of when Beatles and the Rolling Stones came out. Mm. And and the street artists that I knew were less organized, less commercial. And I felt that this was a very special time maybe to do this project. And um, I started in 2011 to do it. And uh, for the next three years, I photographed very intensively for this project. I photographed 160 different street artists from... Basically, I went around the world a couple of times to do this. Um, and it turned out that actually it was the perfect time. I mean, I, of course, there were many artists who were difficult to reach because, because of the illegal nature of their work. So they are used to being very cautious about who they reveal their identity to. And uh, But once I was in there and I'd gained the trust, I think, of, of some of the bigger names, they started to recommend me to other artists. And I mean, now I have photographed most of the artists that I uh, would like to photograph with, again, with a few exceptions, but I'm still working on this project and I'm sure there'll be a second edition of the book as well. And I'm still exhibiting this project as well. If we take a, a look at your career and we've obviously gone through some of the key projects, it would be remiss of me not to mention Souls, which was a really interesting book that I would love to just hear a little bit more about where that came from uh, in your journey and, and what it means to you now upon reflection looking back. Souls was a project I did um, during a 10-year period from the late 90s to 2008, I think. And um, 
it was an ongoing project and it was done during eight trips to India. Um, when I moved to Copenhagen, I attended a lecture with a, an Indian yogi in a public library. And when I think back on this event, I don't really remember anything she said during the talk she held. But I remember prior to the talk, she just stood on stage and and looked out over the audience for about two minutes. And when she looked over in my part of the room, I suddenly felt bodiless. I suddenly just experienced this total light feeling and of just becoming like a small point mm. rather than, than me sitting on a chair. And uh, it, was an, it was an amazing sensation. And... Um, It lasted for a long time, also during this lecture. And then after the lecture, I think they probably handed out some leaflets or something, that there was a meditation course. And then I went to this meditation center and I learned this type of meditation called Raja Yoga. And uh, that same winter, I was going to India to travel for seven weeks. And my meditation teacher told me that the, the headquarters of this organization was in India on, on a mountaintop in Rajasthan. So I went up there and I encountered this huge crowd. There was about 20 or 30,000 yogis on this mountain, all dressed in white. Wow. And all with this incredible energy. Uh, they were radiant, many of them. And um, I was really there to meditate, and I did partake in some of the meditation. It was a pretty tough schedule, like starting four in the morning and meditating for hours and hours all day. But I also started taking some photographs, and I remember thinking on the first trip, how can I capture some of this energy, and how can I share this with other people? And I did a lot of photographs when I was up there in many different ways. And when I came home, and printed some of the images and put them on my wall. And I, I realized I, I had done some very simple black and white images of just yogis meditating with their eyes open, looking straight in the camera, or really they're looking more inward. But it looks like a portrait, but it feels very different from a portrait. I realized that that was sort of my way forward. And then I went back the next winter and did some more. And then it was a, only a question of getting enough material for, and I ended up publishing a book called Souls um, with a hundred images. Would you consider yourself a spiritual person? Yes, definitely. How has that chapter in your artistic career kind of helped shape your sense of personal spirituality? I think it's been very influential in how I see people, and I, I think it's um, also the reason why a lot of my portraits of well-known people or celebrities a lot of my portraits look different i think from other portraits of the same people um i think i try to connect at a different point or level than most photographers because that's sort of what i connect with in myself and um i think it's also i mean now in souls it's very it's very obvious because that's it's a very one-to-one. -one. <laughs> the subject matter is also spiritual people, but I've tried to bring the approach from that project with me to my general portraiture. Mm. And I, 
I also try to capture some of that with some of my newer projects now that I work in nature. I'm also trying to transmit that same kind of energy, um, even though it's my it's first time I try to do so without having people in the photographs. Yeah, and that is fascinating. I mean, you've pivoted more recently to not portraying people for the first time with Black Sun. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and, and how you spiritually connect with nature and what that project means to you? Yeah, yeah I think, again, it's a project that goes back to to my childhood, really. Um, growing up, I spent lots of time in nature. Just There was nothing else to do but being a Boy Scout and going fishing. <laughs> so that's what I would do every day. And I would often be alone and just by a stream or in a forest, by a lake, or um, for hours and hours I would. And I think, I think I kind of had a spiritual experience without thinking about it. At that time, I mean, just being sort of in myself on my own in a, in a quiet space. Um, and then during the winters I would count and record all the birds that came into our garden. <laughs> um, lack of other things to do <laughs> and uh, once my parents took me over to the west coast of Denmark or the southern part of Denmark where I grew up and um, saw starling murmurations in the springtime where these huge swarms of birds were performing this beautiful dance in the sky uh, almost looked like a choreography um, and that stuck with me, that image, and um, something I've always remembered and something I've never thought I would photograph until three years ago when I suddenly thought, well, I think I might go down there for a week and do a sort of short-term project. And uh, now I've been doing it for three years so far. <laughs> and You really haven't mastered the art of the short-term project, have you, no. sir? No, I've, um, I've even expanded the project now to also be... I mean, I started out doing it in Denmark. Uh, I actually thought it was a Danish phenomenon because that's what they say over there where, where it happens. But um, I found out that it's also taking place in different places in Great Britain and also in uh, in Rome, of all places. Mm. Has that energized you to depart from what you were doing for a long time and were very much well known for i mean is that freeing or was it a little bit intimidating or i mean how much did it cross your mind that wow okay i've been known as denmark's preeminent portrait photographer and suddenly i'm shooting birds um it was mainly when i started doing surface i mean that was that i was a bit worried about what the reaction would be from like the music industry and because I had spent many years doing that, and I suppose I kind of identified with uh, being a music photographer, or at least that was sort of the predominant part of my work. But so this time with the birds, I've, I didn't really, I think I got past that kind of fear of what the community might say. <laughs> and I actually, I could feel like these images were very strong, they were very beautiful, they were somehow they remind me more of of souls that i did started in the in the 90s so i i felt that 
that this was a strong project. And also it has turned out that it has opened a total new world for me in terms of exhibitions and a different part of the art world has opened up for me. And a different audience, presumably. Yeah, very different audience. Um, one thing I really like about Black Sun is that it's images without people, so there's not all those uh, references that you have when you photograph famous people, especially, that it's both a portrait of someone that everyone has a lot of knowledge and a lot of opinions about. So it, there's a lot of references pointing out of the picture, whereas this is just an image in its own right. I mean, it's a it's an artwork that only refers to itself. I'm curious, as we've been discussing your projects and how you pull together these books and start to see a red thread amongst the material, and we're discussing the more helicopter view of your career itself, whether the art of reinvention is something that you value really highly, willing to take bold risks at this stage of your career. Yeah, I mean, the point I'm at now, I feel like I can go in any direction. Um, so I have I feel like I've freed myself now from any expectation. I guess part of that is also that I've, it's been received very successfully, or no, it's been received very positively when I've departed from my previous work. So, I mean, that's really made me believe that it's the right thing to do, that I follow my instinct and and go with I mean all my projects are not something that I just come up with it's something that grows naturally out of my life experience I've never I've never come up with a project that's not something that that has been that's very important to me um especially because I spend maybe 5 to 10 years per project mm. and so I I only want to deal with things that really mean something to me do you think about what you want your artistic legacy to be? I'm not really thinking about legacy at this point. Um, I think once I've finished a project, it's kind of in the past for me and I'm not really thinking so much about it anymore. And uh, I still feel like my best work is ahead of me. But I do, I mean, I do hope that my work will will touch people. And I think um, I can see when people look at the work in exhibitions or lectures or books that, that it makes people, it makes people go inside themselves and feel something <laughs> in themselves. And I, and I think that's what I, that's what I hope to inspire. How do you sustain yourself between those flashpoints, as I would call them, where you hold an exhibition or you release a book? Because presumably it's a fairly lonely road. Um, these projects take up to 10 years to complete. So how do you sustain yourself along the journey? Because the projects are always something that's very close to me. And while I'm in the process, I'm extremely driven. I mean, I'm. it's, it's interesting because I... I just finished a project photographing airplane wings for 10 years and every single plane ride I would book my seat according to the sun and the wing and the, I mean, I would have a map of the actual airplane and find out where would be the best place if I'm departing Los Angeles at 7.40 in the morning. And you're not on the terror watch list? or <laughs> And... I mean, for 10 years, I also sacrificed my 
comfort during long travels just to do this and I would be devastated if I couldn't get the right seat. And I've just finished this project and I'm in the process of doing the book. And uh, and now I sit everywhere but those seats and I don't care and I'm not interested in that anymore at all. So Wow, that's interesting. So it's interesting with something like that how I can... It can be the most important thing in the world for me for for a number of years. And then once it's finished, I can let go and then I'll focus on something else. So more broadly speaking, with that level of focus that you clearly have for an artistic project, do you have to sacrifice other things? Has it come at a cost or have you been able to strike that balance even in your personal life? I think uh, it has come with a cost. I mean, I, I'm quite aware that especially early in my career creating images was was by far the most important thing for me and uh, when i started traveling a lot with my work it definitely came with a cost for i mean my kids weren't with me for those periods of time and i did travel a lot when they were little so um, luckily a lot of the work was in london so i could go on the early morning flight shoot all day and then come home on the late evening flight. So, but also a lot of my travels were longer. And um, so I, th I think, especially for my family during the early period uh, of my work, I think, I think they, uh, there was definitely a sacrifice there. But you don't have any regrets? No, not at all. I feel like, I feel like I have something else to offer them. I mean, by what I've created and also, being an example of following your heart and your passion. I think that's probably uh, what I hope that I've passed on to my children. I just have a couple more questions before we finish off. You have photographed some of the biggest names in the world. Is there anybody still on your list, your personal list of people that you would have loved to portray? Yeah, there's still a few um, that I would like to photograph. I mean, there are a few in the street art world, first of all. Uh, I think I have a list of three, four, five people, including Banksy, that I would like to photograph for that. I mean, with those people, I I don't know much about them, so it's very different, actually, because it's more for because of the work they've created. And in the music industry, there's still a few artists out there that I would like to photograph. I mean, I would love to photograph Iggy Pop, for instance. He's a he's an older man now, so um, I better get on with that one. Um, my my biggest wish for many years was to get a photo session with David Bowie. Um, unfortunately, that is not going to happen now, um, which I'm sad about. I I have a feeling that it would have been we could have done something good together. Yeah. So, Soren, as we look to the future, are there any projects that are kicking off or that are in their infancy that you can share with us? There are several of the existing projects that I'm still working on. Um, there's a there will be a book with the Black Sun with the the Starling Memorations, and yeah, then I'm actually, I mean, I'm about to decide what I'm going to do next. And uh, actually, spirituality is uh, something that I would like to work with again. Just like I photographed 
meditating yogis, I would like to make a spiritual project that's broader, that where I photograph people who lead a spiritual lifestyle. I mean, it could be a hermit in Germany, or it could be a, a monk in a cave in Bhutan, or it could be someone living in a city. But, but I'm just interested in people who have dedicated their lives to sort of their inner progress and energy levels and uh, rather than focus on their outer lives. I mean, I would happily spend 10 years exploring that, uh, that field. I think it's fascinating that you've been able to capture a lot of the world's biggest names in a traditional sense <laughs> from yeah. the entertainment industry, but that you find yourself circling back towards those who have lived perhaps a largely uncelebrated lifestyle, uh, but one that has focused on spirituality says a lot about you. I think they, a lot of the big stars I've photographed are also some people that have a special energy in them. And I think that's also why they've become the people that other people look at and celebrate and, uh, yeah, but I think people who are leading spiritual lifestyle do it for maybe for a more pure reason. Mm. Um, and that really fascinates me that someone has attained a level where they don't, where they realize that it doesn't really matter <laughs> what, uh, what the world thinks. Final question for you. We're sitting here in Copenhagen and I'm curious, you've traveled around the world numerous times and presumably you've had many opportunities to base yourself in other cities but you have remained in Copenhagen this whole time why is that I love Copenhagen it's uh, I'm always very happy to come back here I mean I couldn't really think of a better base than Copenhagen I think it's it makes me very happy to live here and also raising two daughters it's amazing to live in a city that's relatively clean and very safe. Um, they can uh, go to school on their own. And uh, there are many very special things about this society, I think, that, um, that's that been lost in many other places. And from an art scene, how do you feel reflecting on your contemporaries in the art scene in Denmark and having travelled abroad and now reflecting back on what it means to be a Danish artist? I'm very happy to be part of uh, the, the art community in Copenhagen. And uh, especially now that I've been here, I've lived here for 24 years. And a lot of the people I met here when I moved here, a lot of creatives, we all now grown up and a lot have matured as great artists. And it's small enough that we know each other. It's a very tight-knit community. We all support each other and inspire each other and you can go visit other artists in the studios and um, I think there's a special, very craft-based thing going on right now in the Scandinavian art scene. There, I think many of the artists I know are extremely skilled uh, and I think maybe it's because of the long winters, I don't know, but <laughs> at least... No one has a problem putting in the hours I think it takes to become like a master of their craft. And I think uh, 
I can really see that paying off now when I've known people for 20 years and who've been working with the same medium for 20 years and have become really excellent at it. And um, I do feel that there's a certain sensibility to in the art that comes from here. I think the, the term Nordic Noir is uh, definitely a, quite precise, I think, in, in describing not only the cinema and the TV series that come from here and, and the literature, but also the visual arts. I think there's a kind of a seriousness and a little bit of darkness in it uh, in most, in a lot of the work that come from here. And uh, that's something I can relate to very strongly because I grew up here. Well, Soren, I know you said that you hope your art inspires the viewer to look deeper within. It certainly does, as does hearing your story. So thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Thank you, Ben. It was great to be on your show. Nordic Portraits is a series by me, Ben Catford. The music was composed by Nina Liu and the visual identity by Copenhagen-based studio Frame. To learn more about today's guest and all the others from this season, visit nordicportraits.net. You can also follow us on Instagram, and remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes so we can get the word out. Thanks for listening.